Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat ahead of you. Let's turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Love this passage. As we prepare to celebrate the holiday of Thanksgiving, This Thursday, let's set our hearts on God and gratitude to God for His goodness to us. Uh, I loved that prayer, Daniel. We would all do uh, well to have just a whole prayer where we just thank God. Thank God. Thank God for His goodness to us. Let's, uh, Paul says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Let's lean in on the truth of God here. Aren't you thankful that we have the words of God to direct us and to guide us and to replace the distortions of Satan in this world with the truth of God himself? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Throughout church history, Satan has had a constant conveyor belt of false doctrines that he has been deceiving the world with. It doesn't really matter which one he gets you to take, just that he gets you to take one. He doesn't care which lure he gets you to bite on, just that you bite on one of his lures. And some of his most effective lures are the ones you least expect. The Apostle Paul is preparing Timothy for a teaching that the church was going to face in the future. And this teaching was no minor deviation from the the truth. It says it will cause some to depart from the faith. And the danger of this particular morally attractive, devout, pious, and holy, but it would be spiritually deadly. So Paul is going to prepare Timothy for this teaching. And as we listen to Paul's words to Timothy, it will guard us against all the modern counterparts of this same false teaching in our day. So there are two main points that Paul makes in this passage. If you're taking notes, just two main points. And the first one that we see is this, is that we must reject counterfeit holiness. Reject counterfeit holiness, which here is... Asceticism. Now, that's a big term. Probably don't use it very often in normal conversation. I'm going to define it in a little bit. Asceticism. If you need to know how to spell that, uh, it's A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. So, before we look at what asceticism is, let's look at where this teaching is going to be coming from. Look at the end of verse 1. Paul says it would come from deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the very inspiration behind this teaching would be the demonic. So here we are entering into the spiritual realm 
that often goes unnoticed to us, but it's just as real as anything in this physical realm. And there's always the to, to stoop us, to deceive us. Satan isn't stupid. He's a loser, but he's not stupid. Um, Genesis says he was crafty. So look at the ease with which he got Adam and Eve to give in to his temptation. So he sounds eminently reasonable. He sounds like he has your best interests in mind. And he can craft ideas and belief systems that look appealing, especially to Christians. That's what he does here. So this teaching would be demonic, but it would also have human teachers who would spread its message. And verse 2 says that, Some in the church would be led astray through these teachers who, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared. So, first, they're liars. They would speak what is false as if it were true, and they're also described as insincere, meaning they're hypocritical. They pretend to be what they're not. So, in all likelihood, all of these teachings with which they were teaching others to follow, they weren't following themselves. But uh, they, they knew how to look holy on the outside, although it was a counterfeit holiness. Now, now let's look at the specifics of this teaching at, at verse 3. The false teachers would, what? Forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So the grand demonic delusion would be mandatory celibacy for everyone. And food laws. That's probably not what you thought of first when you were thinking of demonic deception and demonic teaching. But Satan is just as happy to deceive people through self-discipline as he is through a seance. He, he doesn't much care how he's going to get you. And so, so the technical term, again, for this, this kind of teaching is asceticism. And Kent Hughes defines asceticism as the intentional denial of things that God declared to be good. The intentional denial of things that God declared to be good. And it does this as a badge of holiness, as a standard of spirituality in which one's own life and then the lives of others are therefore judged based on whether or not they're holy. So it looks holy, it looks devout, but it's demonic. So think about it. You know, When you see someone give up meat, for instance, you might think, wow, that must take real self-discipline. I don't have the kind of determination to give up meat. They must be really holy to be able to do that. But holiness always needs to be defined by God's terms and not man's terms. When people start creating laws over and above God's laws and requiring others to follow them, this is one of Satan's many devices by which he gets us to abandon the truth and to add to the gospel. I like John Calvin's directness when he says, to stop people practicing what they are allowed to do, whether this is done on a local or worldwide level, is always, always a demonic tyranny. To stop people from practicing what they are allowed to do is always demonic tyranny. Now, that's not to say there, there is, uh, there, the Bible teaches fasting as a practice by which we abstain from food or certain foods for a time in which to seek the Lord. And self-discipline and taking up your cross and following Christ is uh, biblical godliness, but this is something entirely different. 
This is, this is saying what God declared to be good, no, that's actually evil. And it is adding man's laws to God's laws, which Paul always had zero tolerance for. It was a slander against God, a direct attack on God's word. So the Holy Spirit is warning through Paul to Timothy and to us that this teaching would come, and it came. And if it infected the church throughout the for marriage, with marriage, for instance, which is in this passage. So the early, ch- the early church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose, believed that the extinction of the human race was to, be prefer- was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. Ambrose wrote that married people ought to blush at the state in which they are living. Augustine argued that the sexual relationship was innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. Albertus and Aquinas objected to marital intimacy because it subordinates the reason to passions. Because these guys were just brains. You know, that's, that's what mattered to them, the brains. Um, and the Council of Trent in the 16th century of the Catholic Church denounced those who denied that virginity was superior to the married state. Counterfeit holiness crept in. And it was more than just unbiblical views on marriage and marital intimacy. If you know your church history, monasticism uh, came uh, to the church very early on in its history. And there's some good things and some very uh, destructive things that happened through that. Um, The destructive thing is it added added expectations and signs of holiness, which are nowhere given in Scripture. So Simon Stylites, he began practicing complete abstinence from food and drink during the season of Lent. And he combined that with standing continually upright on his limbs as long as it would sustain him. So that, for him, was this spiritual practice. And he's most known for uh, erecting this 50-foot pillar by which he uh, decided that he was going to live on that until his death. 36 years later, he was still on that pole. So it looks, looks very devout, but that has nothing to do with biblical holiness. So what's the heart behind asceticism? Why does this counterfeit holiness draw people into it? I think there's at least a couple reasons. First, uh, asceticism draws in those who have really sensitive consciences, for one thing. Those who are very aware of their sin, they're aware of their guilt before God. So in order to atone for their own sins... And to seek to redeem themselves, they commit to themselves to a strict adherence of, moral, of a moral code. And the mindset is, if I punish myself, God won't punish me. But the gospel frees us from that kind of self-punishment. The gospel declares that Jesus was crushed and punished for my sins. So I don't have to atone for myself. Jesus is my atonement. All of the weight of God's wrath was placed on him so that I don't have to bear it, so that I could be freed from it. But asceticism is also attractive for another reason. It, it's an attempt to control the perception that other people have about us, which was true for these false teachers. It was true for the Pharisees during Jesus' time. So if I, if I want to make people think that I'm holy, it's fairly easy to do. It's just a matter of acting apart. This is the old problem of the Pharisees. So Jesus was aware of their just merely external righteousness. He rebuked them because they were masters 
at cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup was covered in filth. So that external appearance of holiness was meant to control the perception of other people about me, all the while the sin in their heart remained. The problem with this approach is that at the judgment seat of Christ, outward appearances and all of that acting will be completely stripped away and the real us will be left exposed before God. All our pretend piety that we work so hard to project before others will be seen for the utter hypocrisy that it was. The only hope for hypocrites is to come to the God who sees right through each of us with all of our hidden sin, all of our hypocrisy. Christ died for our sins and rose again so that all who come in faith to him will be forgiven of their sin and hypocrisy. And they would be finally freed from living a life of counterfeit holiness to be freed to live a life of true holiness with the power of the Holy Spirit that is given to them. That is, that is the, what the gospel offers. It is so far better than this counterfeit holiness that these false teachers were giving and teaching. So that's asceticism. It, it offers us a distorted view of holiness, a twisted view of God, and the thing that's going to set us free from that teaching, as well as any other kind of false teaching, is the truth. And the truth that Paul shows us is so much better than what the false teachers were offering. Why would anyone want what they had to offer when God's truth makes it look utterly unattractive, which is what it is? So Paul replaces their counterfeit holiness with, secondly, or second point, true holiness. True holiness. And true holiness is this, receiving all God's gifts with thanksgiving. All of them with thanksgiving. So the good theology that Paul is going to replace this bad theology with is found in verse 4. For everything created by God is good. Let me read that one more time. For everything created by God is good. Wow. Where does that come from? Where is, he, where is he getting that from? Well, Genesis. Genesis 1, 131. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Marriage, God created it. It's good. All foods, God created them. They're good. The false teachers would say, no, actually marriage is bad. It's sinful. Um, those foods that you're eating... Those are evil. Those are unclean. There was a slander against God who said, everything I've made is good. Now, we know that the curse of Adam's sin that it's brought on this world has affected God's good creation. Romans 8 teaches this, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation does, and right now does have this bondage to corruption, yet Paul still maintains everything created by God is good. Present tense, it is good. God loves the material world that he's made. It's delight in the goodness of his creation, and so should we. God's creation all around us 
as a constant reminder of his glory, his wisdom, his creativity, and his goodness to us. Yet so often we could be blinded to the glory of God displayed all around us. You know, it would do each of us good to drive out into the middle of nowhere, outside of the city lights, far away from all of the city lights, and on a clear night and just look up. Just look up. You want to be in awe of God, do that. Do that. Don't watch a video of it on YouTube. Go out and actually do it and see the magnificence of God's creation and his goodness. Taste a strawberry with the knowledge that God invented that taste for us to enjoy. Take a bite of that Thanksgiving stuffing uh, and realize that experience, the texture, the taste, all of it is a gift from God. God could have just made food uh, to be given to us in a toothpaste uh, and a toothpaste jar, whatever those things are called, thing, toothpaste thing, uh, and just a, a colorless, odorless, tasteless goo that would give us all the nutrients that we needed. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He gave us food and a seemingly endless variety of what we can do with food. I mean, look into the eyes of your son or daughter and be in awe of the eternal soul that God gave you the gift of bringing into this world. It's amazing. Listen to your favorite album and be in awe of God that he made a world in which music like that was possible and you can enjoy. And just listen to the thunder and be in awe of that God invented that. I mean, and all of its beauty and earthiness and otherworldliness and God gives us the uh, amazing privilege to enjoy that. So many of us are bored with life because we have bad theology. We're bored by God's creation. If we're bored by God's creation, the problem is not God, it's, it's us. It's us. Uh, God's glory and goodness is seen in all of his creation around us. So even in our world tainted with sin and suffering, we are still surrounded by the constant goodness of God all around us. So the first order of business for us is just to open our eyes, our ears, and our senses and start taking notice of God's goodness all around us. And we need to let this character of this good and gracious and gift-giving God start to be seen in our own lives. You know, if God has given you much more than is needful, Freely give to others of what God has given to you. I mean, if you've experienced the goodness of God to you in great measure, be an instrument for others experiencing the goodness of God to them through you. And God's character, his goodness, his gift-giving nature will be seen in your life. So knowing that the goodness of God, knowing the goodness of God, the glory of God, the creativity of God is constantly surrounding us, that God is constantly blessing us, what should be our proper response? Worship. Worship. Thankful praise to God. Twice in verses 3 and 4, Paul mentions thanksgiving as the right response to the goodness of God's creation. Look in verse 3. Paul says that God created all foods to be received with thanksgiving. 
by those who believe and know the truth. And in verse 4, again he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So what should we do with all God's gifts all around us? Receive them all as a gift from God to you with a heart of gratitude and sincere thankfulness. But Paul goes further, and he digs deeper. He says something just astounding in verse 5. That when we receive God's gift of food and marriage and music and any other gift with thanksgiving, he says, it is made holy or consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This doesn't mean that something necessarily magical happens in your food when you pray over it. Um, It does mean that when a believer receives food with gratitude as a gift from God, Believing God's word, which affirms this is good. It's holy for the believer. That is holiness for the believer. That meal is a holy meal. If we receive it with gratitude to God. I I think the first time I really ever remember seeing this was during seminary when I was with some of my friends. And uh, it was in the summer and we were at one of their houses and we were grilling out and... uh, we were grilling some burgers, and I was on the couch with one of my buddies, and we were about ready to start to eat these burgers that we piled on all the extra ingredients on and everything. Sorry if I'm making you hungry right now. Um, but um, as we were about re- before we were um, getting ready to eat, I saw him bow his head over that cheeseburger. And in the most sincere prayer before a meal that I, had, I think I'd ever seen, He thanked God for that cheeseburger and bit into it with joy. What in the world just happened there? I was thinking, uh, I had never seen anything like that. But I knew it was right. It was holy. That moment was holy. Holiness is not rejecting a cheeseburger because it's somehow unworthy of God or unworthy of a truly holy person. Holiness is taking that bite with joy because you realize it's the gift of God to you. So for the the Christian, every moment, every moment can be a holy moment when received with thanksgiving to God. Every enjoyment of God's good gifts can be an act of worship and praise to God. So driving down the highway, seeing the colors of fall, and thanking God for that, that's holiness. Looking at the blazing colors of the sunrise or the sunset. Did anybody see the sunset last night? It was amazing. It was amazing. Did you thank God for that? Thank God for that. Feeling the warm summer breeze on the beach during vacation, which sounds really good right now. Uh, Thank God for that gift. Take a bite of that impossibly delicious fall dessert and thank God for that gift. When they're brought into this world, I think I cried more than Blair uh, when that happened. Every God-created gift, every God-ordained enjoyment of his gifts become a truly holy moment for Christians when they receive it with thanksgiving to God. Now, this doesn't mean that if we bow our heads and pray before sinning, then it becomes holy. Uh, It also doesn't mean that we can use God's creation however we would like. 
In our sin, we are more than capable of distorting and abusing God's good gifts. So marijuana, for instance, as a plant has many uses for which God intends and God is glorified in its use for, for that plant that he made. God made it, so he has a good purpose for it. But God never made marijuana for you to smoke and get high from it. That wasn't its purpose. So this doesn't mean that sin and an abuse of God's creation becomes holy um, if we just pray over it. God gave us food for us to enjoy, but we can sin with food through gluttony. But when we receive all God's good gifts to us with thanksgiving, it brings holiness into the ordinary, into the everyday, and worship God, the worship of God in the ordinary. A few weeks ago, me and Jess were listening to Christmas music way too early, which I think is also a gift from God, uh, to start right after Halloween and start listening to Christmas music. That's how we do things around our house, and, and we, we love it. Um, so some of you are very disappointed at me right now. Don't judge me. Remember, you know, don't judge me. All right. <laughs> so we were, we were um, dancing with Blair uh, to our daughter to some Christmas songs and just having a ton of fun. And one of the slower Christmas songs started playing and I just had Blair in my arms and she was holding my finger and we were dancing to that, that beautiful Christmas song. And then just out of nowhere... She reaches her little head out and kisses my finger. And it's just like, what in the world? <laughs> that is a moment a dad will never forget. And what did I ever do to deserve that? Nothing. But God gave it to me as a gift. And that moment was holy. So how can we grow as Christians who believe and respond to the wonderful truths of God and his goodness in this passage? First, Seek to cultivate a heart of continual thanksgiving. Seek to cultivate a heart of continual thanksgiving. If we truly understood the, the immense and undeserved goodness of God to us, our hearts would be filled with constant praise to God and constant thank you, thank you, thank you, God. How often do you find yourself saying thank you to God? If we understood this truth, it would be the refrain of every day, but how absent it could be for my own life. How about you? So what will, what will our lives be filled with if not with this kind of gratitude and thankfulness? Well, it would be filled with complaining, fussing, grumbling, contentment. But when gratitude is our song, grumbling won't have a chance to get a note in. It'll be constantly, his praise will be on our lips. So that's the goal, continual praise and thanks to God. That's what God is worthy of. And I want to just commend this to you, not as a law, but as something good. Uh, make it a practice to say grace or a, a prayer of thanks before more than just meals. I love how G.K. Chesterton put it. He said, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen and ink. Now that may sound weird to you to be saying grace before those things, but it, 
it shows this heart of continual gratitude to God in receiving all of these good gifts from God. And all of those moments when we receive with gratefulness, that's holiness. Being at the baseball game with your family and friends, that can be holy to you. Watching Sunday afternoon football can be holy to you when received with a gift, uh, as a gift from God. Yet, we need to remember, and enjoying all of God's gifts, never to make an idol out of them. Don't turn any of God's gifts into a God. Enjoy them as gifts, but let that gift always turn your eyes up to the giver, the source of all goodness. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. God is the source of all goodness and joy. Yes, we take joy in these things, but ultimately our joy isn't dependent on these things. Our joy is is placed in our God, who is the source of all joy and all goodness. So even when God, in his sovereignty, chooses to strip us of any of these gifts in this life, we could still find joy. I'm so thankful for Pastor Daniel's series through Habakkuk. I love the journey of faith that Habakkuk goes on from from doubting God to trusting God and rejoicing in God. Remember again what Habakkuk says at the end of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So find your ultimate joy, not in God's gifts, but in God. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer in Christ, you don't worship this good and gracious God, I want you to think about the blessings of God that he's given to you. He's given you a family, your wife, your kids. It's his gift. Your house, gift. Your car, a gift. Your job, gift. Your talents, a gift. Every day you enjoy these gifts and so many more gifts of God to you, yet you continue to reject him. You refuse to acknowledge him and thank him. And and deep inside, even though you try to push it to the back of your mind, you know that all of these things come from God. Worship and your obedience. Yet you refuse to submit to him, acknowledge him and obey him. And scripture says that you know that your refusal to submit to him will bring his judgment on you, which is death and hell. But God, even though we all rightly deserve his justice, even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. The judgment of God that we deserved was willingly taken upon himself. The sinless one, Jesus Christ, was punished for sinners so that they wouldn't have to be. He died for our sins so they could all be forgiven. God has been so kind to you, so patient with you, but God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to turn to him 
So turn to him today, broken over your sin, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and he will receive you and give you more blessings in himself than you could ever imagine. So church, let's go into this Thanksgiving season in awe of the immense and undeserved goodness of God to us in his creation all around us and his gifts that we enjoy every day and more than that, all of the spiritual blessings that we have through Jesus Christ, which are ours now and forever. We have so much to thank God for, so let's, let's thank him now and let's respond as, as we uh, will sing together in thanking him for his goodness. Let's pray and have our worship team come forward. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we were enemies of you, you loved us, and Christ died for us. Forgive us for all of our ingratitude. Forgive us for our complaining, our grumbling. You've given us Jesus. You've given us the goodness of your creation all around us and, and how often we don't receive that as we ought. But Father, just fill our hearts with your goodness and your, your, your greatness and your, um, your grace to us. Father, help us to go into this Thanksgiving season so grateful and to go into every day the constant song of our life being thank you, God, for your goodness to me. We praise you now together in Jesus' name. Amen.